Hello, I'm Julian Rubinstein, professional funny man, idiot, and, well, podcast presenter for The New Conspiracist. And I'm a journalist with nowhere better to be today, James Ball. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread. Each week, we take one specific conspiracy theory and one great guest, and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What evidence is there for it? And why do people believe in it? And then we settle, once and for all, whether it's fact or fake news. So whether you want answers on 9-11 or the Loch Ness Monster, on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double, hi Melissa, you're in the right place. Now this week, we have got stand-up comedian and host of Radio 4's The News Quiz, Angela Barnes. Angela is someone who I just think is just an absolutely terrific stand-up comic. You might have seen her on Mock the Week or on... uh, Live at the Apollo. She's kind of all over the place nowadays, frankly. But we talked about something that, and, and I will admit this, as, as a conspiracy theorist and aficionado, I didn't even know was a conspiracy theory to begin with. So, James, what is the subject that we're talking about this week? Angela is joining us for a fantastic conspiracy theory about time itself. This conspiracy is referred to as the new chronology, and we're looking at whether the calendar were shuffled around and hundreds of years of history just plain didn't happen. So let's jump right in, shall we? How are you, mate? Hello, I'm good, thank you. This week, we are looking at a conspiracy, which I'm going to be honest, I consider myself fairly well-versed in the lexicon of conspiracy theories, but this one I'd never even heard of. So, Angela, what are we looking at today? We are looking at the new chronology. Dun, dun, dun. So it is one of, it's a, it's a bit weird in the world of conspiracy theories in that it does lurk in quite an obscure corner of the internet, unless you're in Russia, in which case around 30% of Russians are said to think there's something in this. And it is the work of a Russian mathematician um, called Anatoly Fomenko, and he believes, he, in a nutshell, his theory is that um, a lot of what we understand to be the chronology of ancient history was all made up um, in the Middle Ages uh, by some, mostly by Christian scholars, in order to prove uh, that the Bible was right. There was a lot of Vatican behind this, wasn't it? You know, like many good conspiracies, uh, several popes were uh, were in on this one, weren't they? Absolutely. He he believes it was a sort of conspiracy between the Vatican, uh, the Romanov dynasty, because Russians, because the Romanovs were German sympathisers, and the Russians like to believe that the Germans are at fault for pretty much everything. Um, and so he believed that there was this big conspiracy to invent a few hundred years worth of history in order to make the Bible seem true. I mean, it's it's quite an extensive bit of history. It's pretty much everything until the 17th century or so. So like, you know, basically everything before someone could kind of go, actually, no, you know, my great granddad was X or my great granddad's granddad probably. But it's, it's quite thorough, isn't it? Like there's there's a lot of meticulous work behind this. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a mathematician. So and, and during Soviet era Russia, he one of his 
jobs was to um, look for disinformation in um, foreign media. So one of his jobs was to take European and, and Western American uh, newspapers, news bulletins, things like that, and to assess them for disinformation. So he decided to, and he looked at, there's other um, people have done similar work on chronology. So there was um, Nikolai Morozov, who was um, a Russian revolutionary, had start, sort of planted the seeds of this idea that that a lot of history was made up. And um, and Fomenko decided to apply the sort of techniques he used in in trying to work out fake news of the of the sort of Cold War era to more ancient history and, and things like using um, records of natural events like volcanoes or earthquakes or whatever and um, astronomy as well. This is wild though. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. wild to suddenly just be like, we'll just take away that block of what i mean is it 200 years they're saying oh no no the, the, this one actually takes quite a substantial block and merges it this this doesn't we'll get onto one that actually vanishes 291 years but uh, but no this this takes sort of history over a really really long period um i think the fomenko chronology is the one that basically sort of says you know what the classical era didn't exist, Um, which is quite unusual for these new chronologies. But he basically goes, all the stuff you get told was the ancient Greeks or all the stuff you get told was the Romans or all the stuff you get told was ancient Egypt. That was actually all in the Middle Ages. Um, And, you know, normally scholars kind of look at tons and tons of similarities between uh, ancient Russian and ancient Greek mythology and the pantheons of gods and all of this. And, you know, the the standard explanation is that the Romans nicked and appropriated tons of Greek culture. And so the gods ended up having a, a Latin and a slightly more military rebrand. Uh, he's like, no, they're, they're, this, they're just different versions of the same fabricated story. That's why they're all so similar. There's all sorts of little kind of tricks like that in it. It's quite a detailed proposal isn't it it's yeah i mean the book he wrote is is or one of the books he wrote the most famous is called um history science or fiction um and so yeah he's he's a, basically saying that there's this grand conspiracy in order to, but as somebody who so i do a history podcast right but i'm what i'd call i'm a history nerd in that i like reading history books but i'm not a historian so i think most of us that like reading about history we're glad that someone else has done the work, right? And so when you read a history book, you just sort of assume that... What I like about this conspiracy is it's one of the few that I've looked at and gone, yeah, but I don't know that he's not right. You know? (laughs) Obviously, he's been widely disproved. Let's get that out there. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we saying you're an an acolyte to this? Is this what we're saying? Are you outing yourself? Are you coming out on our podcast? Maybe. Why not? I mean, I need a conspiracy theory in my life, and I think if I was going to adopt one, it would be this one. Because I find I like... It's not a dog from Battersea Dog Centre, Andrew. (laughs) This is a a meaningful conspiracy that dismisses a large part of history. (laughs) I think what I... I find it difficult. So I'm not that into ancient history. It's not really my... I like reading modern history because I like things where I can read an account of an event firsthand that someone's written because I'm inherently distrustful. And I think in this time, you know, I think this is quite... um, 
it's quite good to be talking about this stuff now when we are talking about fake news and the spread of disinformation and you know people are very aware of that and actually a lot of history is based on you know writings that um were done after the event or by people with their own agendas you know so what i think is interesting about it is it does make you think well i'm not the expert here so i'm trusting the people who are but what were their motivations and he i mean he looks at there's um uh Scalige, i think is how you pronounce it the he's a french calvinist scholar and he was the sort of um, person who who started the chronology that we know today. So he was the first person really to put together the classical history from Greek and, and Rome, but also go, well, this what were the Persians doing and the Babylonians and the Jews and the ancient Egyptians? And he put all this stuff together in one chronology that he worked on for decades. But in, even in his own time, sort of the the Catholic factions, the Jesuits or whatever, saw his reframing of history and saw that as a threat to their authority on what their version of history was. So chronology is something that we take a bit for granted, but everyone's always argued about chronology. Because ev- everyone wants to be like the cradle of civilization or the cradle of culture or of invention, don't they? Ooh. They want some noble tradition, you know. It's it's kind of just like we know we know England was a backwater for almost the entirety of its history. And yet we end up with myths like the Court of Camelot, et cetera, where you had these virtues and were cutting edge. Even, you know, the upside is because Britain's got recent empire and recent history, we kind of dropped a lot of that, you know, because it was very obviously total bollocks. But things like this are, you know, when we say Fomenko did a book... This is a seven-volume, (laughs) 4,000-page block of stuff. And bear in mind, he is not a historian. He is a mathematician. He's a mathematician. Has he gone a bit David Icke? Has it just all got a bit David Icke? (laughs) What's quite interesting about it, I think, and where you go, oh, hang on a minute, is the real sort of Russian imperialist element to his work. So not only is he saying things like, um, you know, the, essentially he's saying the New Testament happened before the Old Testament, um, which if you're Jewish, you might have something to say about that. I mean, given, given the Old Testament's quite eventful as well, that's quite a exactly. big claim. You know, we've got lots of pillars of salt and global floods and, you know, all sorts of shenanigans. Well, he believes that Jesus wasn't actually born till the 12th century um, and, you know, all these things. But what's... I think one of the most interesting things about his treaties is that he believes that there was a, a, a what he calls the Russian horde, this kind of um, Russian empire, I suppose, to, to equal that of Rome. And, and he believes that all these sort of um, uh, other, uh, like the Mongolians, the Turkish empire, the Ukrainian people, he believes they're all mistaken, that they were anything other the part of the Russian horde. He believes that the Russian horde were this vital power akin to the Greeks, the Romans at that time. It's it's quite a happy sort of coincidence, really, isn't it? That he does this objective mathematical research. Mm -hmm. um, You know, parts of it are used sort of statistical techniques to correlate lengths of reigns of rulers to show that different countries have been transposed. Um, So, you know, he, he says that certain periods of English history 
uh, have been copied and pasted from uh, Byzantine history or vice versa, and therefore are just literally the same two bits of history where pretending they're different. So mm-hmm. he's done all of this independent work. It just happens to have come up to a conclusion <laughs> that perfectly suited his politics, that Absolutely. Russia had a much, much bigger role throughout history that has been very cruelly suppressed and hidden away. I mean, let's not forget, he was writing this in the 70s, you know, slap bang in Soviet era Russia, um, you know, where the the research that you did and anything that you wrote had to sort of toe the party line to a certain extent to get published you know so i think it's no accident that that he's made a very sort of russocentric account of uh, of ancient history so yes i mean and he does say you know real history began in about the 12th uh, sorry the 11th century mm. that's why jesus is sort of shoved at least 1100 years nearer the present day um you know it's it's quite extraordinary that he sort of chose to get rid of the sort of classical era where you can see the ruins, etc. Do we think that this is a kind of like uh, is the is the reasoning behind this? Is it really the creation of a kind of mobilising narrative, like a new myth that sort of links together the sort of primacy of that sort of Russian history that you, as, as Angela's saying, has been sort of you know torn apart, making it analogous to Greece and Rome? Is that really to sort of inspire a sense of nationhood? I think so because this really took off again. Um, sort of in the 90s when, you know, post-Soviet, after the sort of failure of communism, really, and and then you've got your post-communist, the oligarchies, and, you know, there's a lot of anti-Russia um, the, the feeling that needs to be addressed within Russia, you know, and so I think it's no it's no accident of when he was writing this that, that Russia, lo and behold, he's a Russian man writing this in Soviet-era Russia and and suddenly there's this sort of Russian empire that evolves out of his work that we didn't know about before. That's not an accident, you know. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So it strikes me, Angela, that, you know, we're talking about the creation of a brand new mobilizing narrative, something that sort of binds together people in this kind of illusion that they had such prominence in the creation of society. And it sort of almost also reminds me of those, you know, those those ridiculous pictures of like Putin coming up from a snorkel with a, an ancient Greek artifact that he just happened to find. Yes. I mean, there's definitely part of that kind of energy, isn't there? Yeah, it feels like it. What I've read, and I, I, you know, I haven't read all seven volumes of his book. So, you know, but it does feel that there's a driving sort of pro-Russian narrative through this. Um, And, 
yeah, so you have to question not just, you know, even when a scientist is writing, you have to question when they're writing and why they're writing and, you know, what they have to do in order to be published. It's certainly quite a convenient narrative when you are a, a country that is dominating and has built a union with dozens, you know, a, a whole bunch of other countries around you mm. to try and come up with a shared history and a one people's type narrative. Mm. And so, you know, it comes coming back in alongside more Russian nationalism and more sort of Russian expansionism, you can see how it, it galvanizes and mobilizes people. This is written at a time, you know, when a lot of the smaller Russian states were, um, you know, starting to look for independence and were starting to want to move away from the Soviet project, you know. So they needed to create a narrative, like you say, where they actually you know, to take away that independent identity of nature, uh, mm. of, of states like Belarus or, you know, wherever, and to try and reconnect them to to the central idea of, of being Russian. Just though briefly moving sort of away from the specifics and sort of it strikes me, you know, because we've been, you know, I guess speaking to people now about conspiracy theories for the last year and a half. And something that you said earlier, Andrew, about when it was written, why it was written, and who wrote it. Why do you think people have become so bad generally at looking at that when they're looking at conspiracy theories? I think there's a, a, a lot of authorship gets lost, I think, uh, through so social media and the way that information is shared now. So you used to read a newspaper article, you'd know which newspaper it was in, and you'd know probably who wrote it. Whereas now... I think you get a link online and you read, you wouldn't necessarily know, you know, look at what that publication's motives are, what that writer's motives are, where that's come from. You know, I've seen people post on Facebook something from, say, Breitbart. Now, I know they don't read that. I know that they're mm. not that, you know, a right wing conspiracy, but they've seen this article. It, it some way fits into something that's in their worldview, something of their conscious bias, uh, unconscious bias. And so they post it without any sort of acknowledgement of, hang on a minute, <laughs> Steve Bannon's written this, you know, yeah, or whatever. He's, he's got a bit of a dodgy track record in <laughs> yeah. weird sci fi films that never got made in Hollywood. No, I, say, I do think that there's something in people sort of my generation and above I'm in my mid 40s and I think there's something I think younger people are much better at the internet than we are because they've had it their whole lives whereas to us we're still sort of getting a handle on it a little bit and and particularly my generation and, the, and my mum's generation whereby if something's in print it's a you feel like it's trustworthy you know, and or, or somehow trustworthy and I think that the internet provides a lot of stuff that, well, if it's, you know, it still speaks to that mindset of, of things that are in print are somehow inherently trustworthy, despite the fact that, you know, anyone could sit in their mum's basement and write a blog. And I think there's a, a sort of um, that the spreading of this disinformation is so easy now because people aren't checking their sources and they don't. And there's a trust that hasn't been earned, you know, which mm -hmm. might have been earned by a newspaper or, a, a you know. 
other means of communication. Well, I, th- I think it's interesting with things like newspapers and books in that it amazes me how often people talk about, well, they wouldn't let you write that if it wasn't true or that sort yeah. of thing. It's more so for books than papers these days. But um, people seem to think that some checks or some processes exist that just absolutely do not. Mm. Um, you know, if you can convince someone to publish it, you can really write any old crap. And I, I would know. I've, I've published <laughs> books. Um, and they are I think all there's... crap, aren't they, James? So, I mean, you know, you've, got a good, you've got a really good track record there. Unbelievable. Because there's, there's actually quite a well-known effect where people take um, experts far too seriously when they talk outside of their own domain um, because, well, they must be clever or you assume that their expertise extends. So, you know, mm. I'm not going to name him, but there's a well-known UK oncologist, a cancer doctor, who kept telling people what they wanted to hear about coronavirus, that it would all go away by June 2020. Mm. And if you went he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about he doesn't have any expertise in this he's contradicting every expert he's wrong the response would always be well he's a doctor and you're not now Fomenko who came up with this new chronology is actually a brilliant mathematician you know, he's he's not sort of someone who's calling himself a mathematician down the pub or something. He's professor of maths at Moscow State University, uh, and you know, is a very very well respected scholar in that field. Wow, he's not a historian, and he actually tried um, pushing some of these theories on academic historians, who promptly laughed him out of town and went, "No one would ever believe this crap," and so he just published it. Hmm. But because he's notoriously you know brilliant and clever and the way we portray mathematicians is not that they work hard to get what their results are you know it's someone incredibly clever who stands there with a piece of chalk uh, you know thinking in a way as mere mortals could never dream of um and interestingly you know fomenko's theory has uh, another kind of notoriously clever very public uh, supporter and fan um who i'm guessing angela Knows who I'm referring to. Gary Kasparov. Gary Kasparov, yeah. Gary Kasparov, yeah. the chess champion. The chess grandmaster. Yes. No um, way. Yeah. And he, Putin critic. And Putin um, critic. Um, he, yeah, he wrote um, in a, a magazine in, a, in the 90s, I think it was. He met Fomenko in the 90s. I know that. And, and he, he did have some concerns over some of the things he was saying, but generally thought the theory... Had legs, yeah, and and you know Gary Kasparov, obviously a hero in that era yeah, of Russia. So if he's saying it, well, there must be something in it, right? And you don't get much cleverer than a chess grandmaster, right? Yeah, there's definite parallels for me here to you know the build up to the referendum and Brexit. I sort of feel like mm. this sense of creating a narrative that we can be, whether it's true or not, you know, proud of that we can invest in, that we can believe we're 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 part of something. I mean, you know, obviously loosely termed now, obviously is populism, nationalism, ethno nationalism. Do you think that there are kind of real shades of that in in this work, Angela? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I. It, it wasn't necessarily the main thrust of his work, but it was definitely there's threads of it in there. I'd, I'd be really interested to find out his sort of his motivations, I suppose, as a mathematician for why the chronology needs to be fixed, um, and and if it is because 
it allows him to to sort of have this Russian imperialist view or whether it's just, you know, something that as a mathematician he feels needs to be right. You know, he, uh, you know, he obviously believes in what he's saying. He's spent a lot of time and research and money and yeah, he rejects a lot of, I mean, he's quite good at rejecting anything that people say, such as what about carbon dating then? Yeah. Um, you know, and he sort of, his comeback to that is always, well, um, when people do carbon dating, the archaeologist or historian or whatever has already given the scientist a ballpark figure to work within. Right. So right. therefore, they're, you know, they're, they find the thing that they think they're supposed to be looking for. But he says there's all sorts of reasons why carbon dating. But, but obviously it, it should be flagged. There's some, there's some very, very bad maths within mm. the sort of the logic behind um, sort of the new chronology. There's uh, a guy called uh, Jason Colavito who uh, just did unpicked a little bit of it for you. So. His, you know, a lot of this relies on merging the Byzantine monarchs with the monarchs of England, and that helps him get rid of about 275 years of history. Um, now, doing this relies on reordering the Byzantine monarchs twice and removing a few of them. <laughs> but then, you know, he essentially says uh, Ken Vulch of Wessex is clearly the Eastern Roman Theodosius the Great. Um, because they ruled for the same number of years, except um, they kind of actually ended up, uh, one of them ruled for 25 years and one ruled for 16. And he just kind of goes, eh, close enough. Um, <laughs> give, give or take. People who ruled for 16 years and said to be the same person as somebody ruled for nine. It's all potato, potato, isn't it, really? Yeah. At the end of the day. England and, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire are not notoriously close to each other either. Uh, some reigns get merged, six years get gets matched to 13 years. Uh, and at one point, two monarchs, uh, two English monarchs, uh, one called Edgar and one called Edward, I just decided to be the same person because the names are similar and therefore <laughs> just to sort of quote the, uh, the, the sort of conclusion on this, um, you know, the Colavito ends up just writing, his entire theory depends on the idea that history is merely the chronicle of the reigns of monarchs and that mathematical relationships between their reigns is as sound as mathematically as the relationship between two sides of the algebraic equation. Mm. This is nonsense, mm. the worst kind, made worse by the fact that Fomenko had to actively rewrite Byzantine <laughs> history to get his correlation to match the English history he so badly wanted to appropriate. And I just love the idea of this brilliant mathematician just clutching these things together, this desperately, kind of going, well, 9 and 16, basically the same. And it just does start to go from this scholarly work to feeling like a toddler hammering a square into the circle. <laughs> In his work, he's doing exactly what he, you know, accuses the people doing carbon dating of doing. Go, well, you're just making it fit what you already thought. It's like what, like, you've done with your entire work, you know. That is quite it, fascinating, though, that idea, though, isn't it? Like, I, I sort of am fascinated by the motivations of someone who's a celebrated mathematician deciding to, you know, come what may, rewrite the historical narrative. Like, what was inspiring him at the time? Like, what, what, what was his motivation? Just money or...? Well, who knows? I mean... Was it a best-selling work, though? Like, did it, did it make him incredibly rich putting out this work? I don't know if it made him incredibly rich. It sold pretty well, I think, in Russia. It didn't travel outside of Russia. Um, again, people like Kasparov sort of highlighting it 
wouldn't have hurt that, I'm sure. But I think his motive were his motivations genuine? I I honestly don't know. I mean, the the sort of narrative is that he was working on uh, contemporary disinformation, and he sort of wanted to apply those techniques to to ancient history. But but whether his motivation was monetary or status, um, mm. you know, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, ways of you know. It, again, we remember he's in Soviet Russia, so if exactly. you can get a certain amount of status or a certain amount of recognition for your work, that sort of can keep you safe from maybe yeah. other you know, aspects of Soviet life. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think also, you know, we do tend to underestimate people want to be the genius who discovers something everything else was wrong about. And mm. when you can do it in such a way that in a, you know, very, very nationalistic country, you know, even liberal Russians are very proud of Russia and Russian's history. You know, if, if it, it suited him in all of these ways, everything lined up, you know, financially, politically, reputationally, you know, if if suddenly everything is in your interests, if you believe this, you often end up believing it. And mm. um, it should be said as well, it's not that unusual for prestigious people in one field to suddenly go completely barking in others. Well, I was about to say that. That does seem to come up a lot. I could set off a lot of people uh, and just say, you know, Noam Chomsky is a very good linguist. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> but I will leave that one there. But, you know, the uh, the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Literature uh, thinks that 5G causes coronavirus. Wow. Uh, you have Nobel... What are you talking about? Who said that? Sir Svetlana Alexievich. Oh, my God. Um, um, but uh, you have eminent sort of Nobel winning scientists who believe some absolutely ludicrous alien related conspiracy theories. I feel like the takeaway from this is maybe people need to just stay in their lane. I feel like we should uh, sort of tackle one particularly sort of fun I know where you're going with existing this. debunk of uh, this one. Where are we going? I'm excited. So one of the more entertaining ways that you can confirm that history worked as it did was that, you know, what became the Holy Roman Empire has issued annual coinage every year since about... 200 years before Jesus, something like that, to around 1453. And you can dig up and dig around fairly commonly stuff from every single year in between (laughs) now and then, which if you are trying to get rid of 1100 years of history... makes this hoax go from this elite thing involving the Romanovs and, uh, you know, the top of the Catholic Church and various others to an absolutely extraordinary continent-wide thing to put these coins in fields right across, you know, an entire place. And so there's just this very boring, easy thing of not particularly rare coins. You can line up to go, yeah, okay, there probably were 1,700 years years between the first one of these and the last one of these i love this i love the thought of some sort of 12th century bishop just going digging <laughs> holes and just i'll just pop a coin in there that'll sort that out 
<laughs> yeah, just cheeky. Just I thought it was like one of the, you know, it's like when you talk to evangelical Christians about dinosaur bones yeah. and they just say, well, God did it. So you're like, I'm just imagining, you know, an all-powerful, mighty, alternal God just dropping various random coins that would carbon date at slightly different years. I mean, it's, you know, it's impressive. It's an impressive operation. It's got to be admitted. <laughs> it's just one of those quite pleasing ones where, you know, you can point to all the masses of actual real evidence, etc. But the coins are the one that just, because it's hard not to look at these and go, well, it could be, and it's interesting. How do I know that this came after this? And then, you know, someone just goes, yeah, we've got 1,600 years of coins. And you kind of yeah. like, ah. I'm yeah. totally fascinated, though, by this idea that every society seems to go through where they need to put themselves in primary pole position as, like you said, having some sort of connection to the cradle of humanity. Why Why has that become so much more important now? Is it just nationalism or is it just lost touch with our identities or... Is it not that human beings are just inherently quite narcissistic and we all want to be at the centre of our own story? And that just, you know, that just is a, a we're a macrocosm maybe of, of a nation that also wants the same. You know, we we need to be the centre of our stories. Otherwise, we can't be on the fringes of our own narrative. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I feel quite sorry. You know, there's 7.6 something billion people on the planet. And, you know... All the ones who aren't me are really deluded in <laughs> thinking that things centre around them. It's it's going to be quite difficult for them. Yeah, it's tough, James. It's tough for everyone else who's not you. You know, we all go around. <laughs> me and Angela were just texting before, but we got here going, "How are you doing today?" Still not James. How are you doing? Yeah, still not James. As well. It's really really tough. Um, but isn't it? Is it? Is it just narcissism, or is it actually like? Because I feel that. There's a sort of profound shift going on, isn't there, where people, I think, particularly due to COVID and everything like that, I think are really questioning, like, what is the good life? What does it mean? You know, and there does seem to be this kind of, uh, as well as the narcissism, I think there's a sense that people are just unimportant, right? The realisation that that you're just not very important. And I don't mean you specifically, Jolian. I mean, one is just not very important. I should fucking hope not. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think like that what coronavirus has brought home to people is that, well, is that the, the economy matters more to the government than individuals do. And that is always, that's always been the case because you can't, you know, we like to believe that every individual human being is equal in the eyes of other human beings, but it's demonstrably not the case to, to you know, decision makers. Um, and that's terrifying when you realise that, you know, if there's one ventilator and there's three of you, you might not be the one who gets picked. Um, and that's something we've had to start thinking about in this time. It's like, well, what, why aren't I as important as that person, you know? And, um, that that sort of it's frightening it's destabilizing for people and for a country to realize that they've got you know it sort of reminded us that we don't control the world entirely again hasn't it you Absolutely. know we felt quite on top of things yes okay bad things might happen but they're the deeds of you know evil people or they're at the fault of our own mistakes mm. a big virus just suddenly coming back is like oh shit yeah, yeah we're just we're vulnerable. like one species among many. Yeah. Listen, we've got to that point of the podcast where we have to ask, 
Is this conspiracy theory a forgazy or is it the real deal? So, Angela, you have brought this totemic novel, this totemic piece of work, even to our to our to, to the listeners' ears. Should they be believing it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. It's 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 interesting and delightful and it makes you think about history which i think is a good thing because you know and it makes you think about um uh, motivations for historians and things mm. like that you know but ultimately it's been widely disproved and and no james so um, i mean time is a social construct jolly and uh, but no this this one this one is nonsense listen uh, on that bombshell angela thank you so much for coming on the show where can people find you online if they don't follow you already uh, they can find me on Twitter at Angela Barnes um, or if you go to my website, which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk and you can sign up to my mailing list and I don't yeah. spam you. I just let you know when I'm touring and stuff like that. I bet you can't wait to get back out on stage, right? Oh, man, I am. Um, there's only so many gigs I can do to a laptop in my dining room. <laughs> <laughs> well, on Honestly. that bombshell, I'll ask you, please, 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 if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it, give it a like, or get, you know, subscribe. It really does help with the, uh, the crazy algorithms that seem to run the world. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week. 